Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I am so excited that you have chosen to join me again today for another episode of Military Murder. I am your host, Margot, and I'm going to start this episode with a little bit of my military mumbo jumbo because it's called Military Murder, so I want to give you guys a little bit of background. I'm going to start with this. Many people join the military kind of straight out of high school. And just like when you're in college, a lot of people want to study abroad. And in the military, people want to be stationed overseas. And one of the dream assignments is Kadena Air Base, Japan. And this base is on an island called Okinawa. Now, did you know that the island of Okinawa has over 50,000 American military personnel? That's a lot of Americans. And if you add in the other U.S. civilians who work there, the number is closer to 80,000. And even with all of these people and all of these Americans, and we all know Americans like to act a fool, violent crime is particularly low on the island. And that's why it was surprising when the body of an airman was discovered brutally murdered in his off-base apartment in 2011. Was the murder a result of the rising tensions between the Japanese and the Americans? Or was it something more sinister? Join me today as I discuss the murder of Air Force Technical Sergeant Curtis Eccleston. Now, let's dig in. So I want to start the episode with some of my sources. My sources came out of the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals Opinion, a CBS News report from June of 2019, and Travis Tritton's coverage of the case in Stars and Stripes. Well, our story begins with Technical Sergeant Curtis Eccleston. Curtis was a tall, handsome man from Maryland, and he joined the Air Force in 2001, and he was in the air transport career field. In 2008, Curtis was transferred to Kadena Air Base, Japan, and he was stationed with the 733rd Air Mobility Squadron. It was not too long, though, after arriving on the island that Curtis met 29-year-old Barbara Kiki Nikandakari. And, you know, she was pretty well-known on the island. She was somewhat of a socialite. Men just, like, flocked to her. I imagine her as the Kim Kardashian of the island. Curtis was in love, and he was excited for his best friend, Rich Brown, to meet her. Rich is scheduled to come and visit in Kadena. And when he comes, Barbara is a doll. She's basically their local tour guide. And Rich really likes Barbara for, for Curtis. They seem to really get along great. In April of 2010, Curtis and Barbara, they have a quickie marriage at the Justice of the Peace. And all things seem to be going well, at least from the outside looking in. But things are different behind the scenes. Within a few months of the marriage, Curtis begins to realize that his marriage with Barbara, it's like being married to a childish socialite. She doesn't have any talent. She doesn't have a real job. She doesn't seem to be good at anything except for babysitting. And this is causing a huge strain on his marriage. And at this point, he's contemplating divorce. But before he can actually go through with the divorce, Barbara tells him she's pregnant. 
Curtis is ecstatic. He is just so excited. He's really, he really wants to be a dad. And so he pushes the thoughts of having a divorce to the back of his mind and he's focusing on his wife and his future baby. And he tries to make it work, at least for the foreseeable future. However, before Curtis can become a father, something tragic happens. On February 6, 2011, a friend goes to visit Curtis at his house. He finds that the front door is unlocked, and when he enters, he finds Curtis's dead body in his apartment, and blood is everywhere. The police immediately begin an investigation. Now, Curtis lives off base in Japan, and the murder would require a joint investigation between the Japanese authorities and the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. That's the Air Force's detectives, OSI. That's what I'm going to call it for the rest of the episode. These investigators, they quickly learn that Curtis is married, but his wife is nowhere to be found. So they begin to suspect, hey, maybe she's hurt or maybe she's been abducted from the home. But with no leads as to her whereabouts, this becomes their main priority, finding Barbara. While OSI is going around asking questions, seeing if anybody, neighbors, coworkers, or anything have seen or heard anything, Investigators get a break when a security forces member and security forces for the Air Force is basically the military police. So the investigators get a break from a security forces member. And this person says, hey, I know an airman by the name of Staff Sergeant Nicholas Crone. And that guy knows Barbara and he might be able to help, especially because you're trying to find Barbara. Nick shows up to the crime scene after his friend calls him and says, hey, Barbara's missing, her husband's dead, you need to get here ASAP. So Nick and Curtis, they weren't friends, but they worked in the same unit and Nick and Barbara, they were friends. And Nick was extremely cooperative. He shows up to the crime scene and he's answering all of the detectives questions. He provides them, and I'm not sure why he does this, but while they're interviewing him, I think they take him down to the station. He provides them with his computer, his cell phone, his car for examination. I mean, he's like, whatever you need, let me help. I want to help as much as possible. And I'm thinking investigators are getting all this information, right? Because in any murder investigation, they need to clear people who are providing information, especially when they're extremely helpful, because you need to make sure that you're not getting information from the actual suspect. And we all know that suspects like to input themselves into the investigation. And so Nick is extremely cooperative. I mean, in fact, the agents, they're extremely happy at his level of assistance. He was so helpful that he actually reveals Barbara's whereabouts. She's at her friend's house. Before investigators leave, though, Nick has one more piece of information. Nick tells the investigators that Curtis wasn't a very good guy to Barbara. In fact, he was very abusive. And although the investigation hasn't been going on for a very long time, this kind of takes the investigators by surprise because they hadn't heard this before. So the investigators, they're able to track Barbara down to a friend's house, which is what Nick had told them. And they find out that she's at her friend's house, house sitting while her friend is deployed. When she's informed of the terrible news that her husband has been murdered, her reaction is not that of a grieving widow. At least that's not what the investigators perceive. Now, I'm not one to judge because everyone reacts differently, but this is kind of suspect. Investigators find it odd that when they tell her, hey, your husband's dead, she doesn't ask to see him. She doesn't ask anything. She doesn't even ask what happened. 
In fact, she immediately began to drop allegations that her husband was involved in some illegal drug activity. And during this time frame in 2010 and 2011, drug activity on Okinawa, it's increasing. So the investigators, they're like, okay, this, this is kind of, this is plausible. Let's get the experts on the line. But before they can do that, Barbara also tells them that Curtis was mistreating her. Now, OSI is armed with this investigation. Hey, maybe this murder is drug connected. And due to the possible drug connection, OSI brings in the experts, NCIS. And so NCIS stands for Naval Criminal Investigative Services. In Japan, NCIS in this area specializes in counter narcotics. And that's why they bring him in. So now we have the Japanese authorities, OSI and NCIS trying to get to the bottom of this murder. After the investigators follow this lead about this drug allegation, they begin to realize that the drug scenario doesn't really lead anywhere. It's a dead end. And in fact, the only lead them to question Barbara's motives. Why is she slandering her husband's name after his murder? And this lead into the drug scenario doesn't seem likely at this point. Curtis's murder doesn't seem like that of a drug deal gone bad. It's not one of those things where they're like, let's just kill this guy to shut him up or whatever. I mean, it seems like a crime of passion because he is stabbed multiple times and he has multiple defensive wounds. And another thing, the investigators thought that the crime scene did seem staged. There was a missing laptop and Curtis's cell phone was gone, but nothing else was missing. When Barbara was confronted with this misguidance of information that she gave him, Barbara's story begins to change. She's like, oh, no, no, no. I didn't say he was a drug dealer. I said he was holding someone's drugs. And he did this because he was looking for extra cash because we were going through a divorce. And so investigators, they're like, we're calling your bluff lady. You seem like you're full of crap. Because after Curtis's murder, Barbara, she's talking all this crap about her husband being a drug smuggler, holding some drug dealer's drugs or money or whatever. But she's just walking around town gallivanting and she doesn't appear to be the wife of a recently murdered person who should be scared for her life because maybe she has information, which clearly she's saying she does. And she doesn't seem like she's scared of anything. Investigators begin to suspect that maybe Barbara is having an affair. Okay, this lady, she just seems like she's probably stepping out on her husband. But when they check her alibi for the night of Curtis's murder, she was house sitting during that time. And you're probably thinking, okay, well, she's house sitting. Well, if no one saw her, it's possible that she committed the murder. But she was actually online playing a World of Warcraft game on an online community. This is somewhat of a good alibi for her because she's online. Apparently, she's talking to all the people there. But I guess she could be playing this game in theory really anywhere, right? Was it possible that she was online playing this game and killing her husband at the same time? Or did she send someone to commit the murder? And that's what the detectives start to wonder. After the detectives do some digging, they discover they were right. Barbara was in fact having an affair. And guess who her affair was with? Nicholas Crone. And so Nick and this is such an interesting case because Nick and Barbara, they dated long before Curtis was ever in the picture. Before Curtis comes along, Nick and Barbara, they met online on a social dating website and they begin having a sexual relationship. They're basically hanging out or hooking up or whatever. 
and soon Nick finds out he has to go on a temporary assignment to Turkey. In Nick's absence, Barbara begins to date Curtis. And when Nick comes back, she drops Nick and she says, "Mm, I'm with this other guy now, but they remain friends. An investigator smelled that something fishy was going on. But if Nick is somehow involved, why would he be so open and willing to talk to them? I mean, he's in the interview room. He's giving his cell phone. He's giving his laptop. I mean, he let them look at his car. And it seems odd, but they had to look at Nick as a suspect. And so the Japanese authorities pulled the surveillance tapes from Curtis's apartment complex to see, you know, if somehow that video caught a glimpse of the attacker. And during the interview, Nick tells the investigators that on the night of the murder, he got off work between 6 and 7 p.m. He meets up with Barbara and another friend for dinner, and then he goes straight home around midnight. While he's home, he's studying for an exam before he goes to sleep. But we all know surveillance video doesn't lie, even if it's not always the best quality. And the surveillance video told a different story. The video shows a man that appears to be Nick parked in a car outside of Curtis's apartment long after midnight. At this point, Nick was caught in a lie. And let's just discuss a true crime army detective rule, because if you're listening to this podcast, I know you love to figure out who committed the crime before the show reveals the killer. So, true crime army detective rule. You ready for this? Drum roll, please. The truth never changes. So that's our first clue that something is seriously wrong with Nick's story. How can he be at home studying and then sleeping and also outside of Curtis's house? Six days after Curtis's murder, they bring Nick in and at this point, he's a suspect and they Mirandize him. They basically advise him, hey, you're a suspect. You don't have to talk. You have the right to an attorney. Even though they tell him this, they make him feel at ease saying, hey, we don't think that you committed the murder, but we think you know who did or you know something. Nick feels pretty calm and he's pretty confident and he says, nope, I don't need a lawyer. And yes, I'm willing to talk. This interview lasts about eight hours. Nick's story keeps changing. And this time he says, oh, yeah, I did leave my apartment that night. But what happened was Barbara had told me at some point that Curtis was abusing her and that information really had me all jacked up and I couldn't stay at home studying and sleeping and so I had to get out of the house to get some fresh air. So I got in my car and I drove around for hours because I was just so angry at Curtis for being mean to Barbara. But then he admitted a little bit more. He said, yeah, yeah, I did drive past Curtis's house that night and I did want to confront him. But after I went there, I realized that's not a good idea and then I left. And then his story changes again. This time, he drives to Curtis's apartment. He parks outside and starts to think for a little bit. Should I go upstairs to confront him? But he says, nah, 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 that's not a good idea. I'm going to leave. And then he leaves. And then the investigators are sitting there like, Nick, come on. We know you're bluffing and we think you went to see Curtis that night. So just go ahead and tell us what happened. Nick thought about it for a little bit and he's probably thinking, you know, there's probably footage that I'm not going to be able to explain. And this is exactly what the investigators want him to be thinking. As he's thinking this, he confesses, hey, 
I did go to Curtis's house that night and the investigators are ecstatic. Besides that grainy CCTV footage of a car that looked like Nick's parked outside of Curtis's house, the investigators had nothing. But Nick didn't know that. And this is exactly the evidence they need to show that Curtis was confronted at his house by someone and maybe that someone was Nick. At this point, though, Nick continues to give just tiny pieces of the puzzle. This time, Nick says he knocked on the door and they get into a heated argument that turns physical quickly. And they continue this fist fight for a few minutes. And then all of a sudden, they just stop fighting. Nick gets up. They leave. And that's that. And the investigators are like, really, really? We don't believe you. And they again confront him and they ask, how do two grown men alone in an apartment de-escalate a fistfight? Hmm? Yeah. And you know what? I really want to know. Please enlighten me because this seems insane, especially if emotions are inflamed. When he's confronted with the question, how do two grown men stop a fight? Nick bows his head and says that during the fight, he saw a kitchen knife. He grabbed it and he just kind of haphazardly swung the knife. And he thinks he struck him, but then he left. And that's all. The investigators begin to see a little bit of truth in this version of the story. However, they don't believe that Curtis was killed with a kitchen knife. He appeared to be killed with something like a double-edged knife, almost like a box cutter. So Nick's story really isn't meshing up with the crime scene. So what really happened? Nick continues to talk. Nick starts to talk about religion and he says, hey, I really need to come clean. And finally, he gives the final and most believable version of what happened to Curtis that night. Nick and Barbara were, in fact, having an affair. And so how did this affair work? Because remember, Nick and Curtis work in the same unit. So Nick and Curtis, they worked opposite shifts. So while Curtis was at work, his wife would spend all of her free time with Nick. At some point, Nick and Barbara, they begin to joke about killing Curtis. And then the conversations, they get like a, you know, a truth tone to them. And they discuss various ways to kill Curtis. And these two fools, I mean, they're basically trying to convince themselves into it. It's kind of like when you're joking, maybe you're out with your friends and you're drinking and you're joking like, oh, can you imagine if we go skydiving? And then you're like, oh, should we go skydiving? And then your friend pulls something up on his or her iPhone and they say, do you know they have skydiving this weekend? And then all of a sudden you find yourself, it's Saturday morning and you're strapped to a skydiver and you're jumping out of an airplane. And it all started as a joke. And that's exactly what happened here. So Nick and Barbara, they discuss various ways to kill Curtis. And by the way, these conversations don't only occur in person. They also occur over text messages. And let's not forget about that phone and laptop that Nick so gingerly gave to the police when they first questioned him. It was a landmine of evidence against Nick and Barbara. But Nick thought he was so slick and he deleted all of the evidence. But guess what? The investigators found it because unless you're good, like really good with computers, even if you delete something, so you can't just put something into your recycle bin and then delete everything from your recycle bin and then it poof disappears. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that. So so Nick doesn't know what he's doing and he thinks he's being slick by giving this information to the investigators when he originally meets with them, not realizing that they're going to find every last bit of evidence that points towards him and Barbara. They discover that Barbara is the mastermind behind this murder. 
she continues to egg Nick on and she does this by claiming that her husband is abusing her. Over the course of three months, they discuss three different heinous ways to kill Curtis. And I perceive this as it took them three months to finally get the nerve to go through with it. And I by no means condone murder. But these fools are sitting here chatting about this for three months. And you know, the sad part is that at any point within that three month period, either of them could have just called it off. But they were too sick and too committed. And these people were just evil to the core. There was one text message thread between the two of them. And it was something like, One of them saying, I want to skin him alive. And the other one says, well, we need a plan. We failed tonight, maybe another night. And then Nick chimes in with, it's going to be great. You will finally be free from him. I mean, Barbara even texted Nick while he was at work one day and she asked him if he loved her. And of course, he professed his love for her. She says, can you prove it? Will you kill him for me? And this text message is happening while Nick is at work in uniform. The first plan, also called Plan A or the, quote, steps plan, was very elaborate. Curtis and Barbara, they live in an apartment complex. And in order for them to get to their vehicle, they have to take the stairs. They live on a a higher level apartment. And the plan was to tie fishing line at the top of the stairs right outside of their apartment. She was going to fake an allergic reaction to something. And then Curtis, being the gentleman and hero, He was going to run to the car to get the EpiPen, but he was going to trip on the fishing line and presumably fall down the stairs. And that's where Nick would be waiting at the bottom of the stairs to break his neck. Unless, of course, it was already broken with the fall. I I couldn't find too much information about the second plan, but the second plan was something to the effect of they were going to have him somehow lose consciousness. Then they were going to put him in this car and push him and the car off of a cliff. And the third plan was called the backup plan. And this is the one they executed. This was the quote, drug dealer plan. And basically making it appear as if Curtis was murdered by a a fictional local drug dealer. These are the facts as they actually played out. On February 3rd, the duo, they put their plan in motion. While Curtis was at work, they unlocked a bedroom window in order to give Nick easy access to the apartment. This was gonna stay unlocked for a few days. So a few days later, though, he's getting really nervous. He's like, I don't know if I can do this. How about if I open the window and it's too loud? How about if I jump on the bed? Because I guess the bed was underneath the window. And he was concerned, like, how about if I jump on the bed and it's too loud and and Curtis catches me? And Barbara's like, dude, come on, let's go do a dry run. In order to ease his mind, they go over to the house while Curtis is at work. They do this dry run. He opens the window. He jumps on the bed to test how loud the bed is when he's entering. And the plan is for him to enter the window late at night. They think that Curtis is going to be playing computer games with his headphones on. And that is when Nick is going to sneak up behind him and slit his throat. So that's the plan, right? On February 5th, Nick leaves work around 9. He drives home and he packs his kill bag. And these are the items in his kill bag. Ready? Surgical gloves, dishwashing gloves, white hand towels, a hunting knife, a box cutter, and some clothes. After he packs his kill bag, he takes his bag and he leaves to dinner with Barbara and a friend. He left dinner claiming that he needed to go study. But instead of going home, he parks a mile from Curtis's home. He changes into his black clothing 
and he grabs his kill bag and he begins to walk a mile towards Curtis's apartment. And I'm just sitting here thinking, that seems like a lot. I mean, is his plan really to walk a mile, commit a murder, walk another mile and not be seen by anyone? So he gets there and the apartment, it appears to be dark and he's somewhat concerned that his plan is already shot. His plan was to catch Curtis by surprise. He begins to panic and he calls Barbara for advice. Nick then decides, okay, I can't do this right now. I don't think it's going to go as planned. And so he goes back to his car and he's hoping that at some point Curtis will fall asleep. When he goes back to his car, he takes a nap and then around three o'clock in the morning, he wakes up again. Again, he calls Barbara. She kind of pumps him up. This time, he drives his car a little closer. He's thinking, I'm not going to walk a mile. That was a little extra. And he drives his car. And as he's approaching the apartment, he sees the flicker of a TV light. And Barbara says, hey, that's fine. That means that either Curtis is playing his video game or he's asleep with the TV on. And he does this all the time. So don't worry about it. At four in the morning, Nick is ready. He's ready to execute his plan. And he puts on his dishwashing gloves and he puts the hunting knife in his hand. He enters the apartment through the window and he catches Curtis by surprise. And he starts slashing and stabbing Curtis multiple times. And Curtis is fighting for his life and he's pleading. He's pleading. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please. I promise that if you just walk away, I won't report this. I promise. I promise. But Nick at this point, he's too committed. However, Curtis didn't go down without a fight, and he had multiple defensive wounds on his hands, his feet, even his knees. But the deadly cuts, they occurred to his neck as Nick stabbed him over and over again. At 4.47 in the morning, Nick calls Barbara from inside of Curtis's apartment, and this call lasts about six and a half minutes. During this call, he puts the phone on speaker and he continues his assault on Curtis. He then takes Curtis's computer and his cell phone because he wants to make it look like a robbery. As he's leaving, Barbara asks him if Curtis is dead. And Nick ruthlessly replies, quote, no, but he only has minutes, end quote. On February 13th, Curtis is placed under arrest. Investigators now are eager to get Barbara. But remember, she's not a military member, so she had to be brought in by the Japanese authorities. When the Japanese authorities bring this woman in, she appears to be an actress. She's like moping and speaking limited English. But come on, she doesn't even appear to be grieving her dead husband, not even at this point. They confront her with Nick's statement and she downplays her entire role and she completely throws Nick under the bus. So much for love. When she's confronted with the three months worth of text messages, she has an explanation for that witchcraft. Now, this woman claims that she had turned to witchcraft. She says, after years of following a traditional religion, I was fed up with God. I mean, he wasn't answering my prayers. And I'm wondering, what are your prayers? That your husband is murdered? Like, really, come on. And so after she's fed up with God, she becomes a Wiccan. And this is basically modern witches. And she claims that she had cast a spell on Curtis and asking Nick to kill Curtis wasn't really her asking to kill him, but it was all part of a spell. It was all part of her plan. Oh, and let's not forget, remember when she told her husband that she was pregnant? Well, Barbara confesses that this was a hoax. Curtis really wanted a divorce and she knew that the only way to keep him around was to fake this pregnancy. And guess what? 
Nick also knew about the hoax. I mean, the two of them even went as far as to fake sonogram pictures to show Curtis. Poor Curtis, this just shows how evil this pair was. I mean, they were made for each other. The part that confuses me the most is why go through with this whole fake pregnancy and then an elaborate murder plot to get rid of your husband. All he wants is a divorce, so why not just give him a divorce? And let me just plug, she wouldn't be in this predicament if she had followed our first true crime army rule. Divorce is always better than murder. Always. That is just a public service announcement. Tell your friends to listen to Military Murder. It could save them years in jail. Just saying. Now, back to the story. Barbara and Curtis's relationship was not without problems, and they used to get into some heated arguments. In order for Barbara to rile up Nick during this time frame, she would record these arguments, and then she would use them and let Nick listen because she would rile him up and basically say, this is what he told me, and then he was physically abusive. But I just want to point out that these allegations of physical abuse have never been substantiated. After Nick's interview, he agrees to show police where he dumped the murder weapon. And after an eight-day search involving 150 Japanese authorities, they found a backpack with two knives off of the southern coast of Okinawa. And wait, if you think that the story ends there, not so fast. The biggest shocker of all, dum-dum-dum, Barbara was living a double life. Yup, she had two children from a previous relationship. And remember, Curtis was left in the dark about this. The crazy part is that he had met the kids. She was always telling him that they were her cousins. Remember that part about Curtis saying, dude, my wife is just a glorified babysitter. Yeah, well, she probably was always babysitting because they were her freaking kids. And that is just so sad. Poor Curtis. I mean, this part right here really irked the crap out of me. The Japanese authorities end up charging Barbara with murder. The Air Force charges Nick with capital murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and wrongfully impeding an investigation. In an effort to avoid the possibility of the death penalty, however, in January of 2012, 11 months after the murder, Nick pleads guilty to all of the charges. And on February 9th, he is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. He is currently serving his sentence at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. In April of 2012, Nick was the star witness at Barbara's Japanese trial. But she again claims her Wiccan defense and she claims, hey, I didn't mean to kill him. It was just supposed to be a spell. I didn't think it was going to be real. But you know what? The Japanese jury saw straight through her book and the three panel Japanese jury found her defense, quote, extremely irrational, end quote. And they sentenced her to 20 years of hard labor in Japanese prison. Chief Judge Suzuki reprimanded Barbara and he said, quote, you erased two men who were close to you from this world and society. Your criminal responsibility is extremely grave. What you need to do now is to repent and serve your prison term, end quote. Besides the fact that these two evil people happened to meet and fall in love with each other, the investigators, even after all of this, they're trying to find a motive for Curtis's death. I mean, is it possible that two evil people just happened to meet and fall in love with each other and that was enough for this crazy, brutal murder? I mean, maybe. But the investigators were looking for more. What else could have caused this? It is discovered that Curtis had recently received orders to the U.S. So it's possible that 
Barbara didn't want to leave with him because she was married and she, in essence, would probably have to leave with him. If not, I guess. And maybe her and Nick planned this in an effort to avoid her leaving the country. But it was discovered that Curtis had actually requested that he be allowed to stay in Japan a little bit longer because he was hoping that Barbara would be able to have the baby in Japan. And that information was just really sad for me. So I guess that could be a motive is Barbara didn't want to leave the country. Another motive, as always, and this is just, you know, life, I guess. Another motive was the potential of her receiving $500,000 in life insurance. Now, Curtis was in the process of changing his beneficiary to someone else. Maybe she got wind of this and she wanted to get this murder accomplished before he changed the beneficiary. Curtis was 30 years old at the time of his murder, and he was murdered 11 days before his 31st birthday. His body was returned back to the U.S. a week after his murder, and his family was able to finally celebrate his life. Sadly, since his death in 2011, both of his parents have passed away. I found an online obituary where someone wrote, quote, I know that your mother passing away would have greatly upset you, but since you left her, she had suffered so much. I truly hope there is a heaven where you can hug each other once again, end quote. That really hit me in the feels, and I hope Curtis is with his parents right now rejoicing in a better place. The Air Force community still manages to remember Curtis every year during its annual Port Dog Memorial Run at Joint Base McGuire-Dix Lakehurst. Port Dogs around the globe also conduct a memorial run. The run honors Air Force members lost in the air transport career field during previous years. This year, the run took place on May 17th and the group run ended in a group salute to Curtis's aunt and brother who attended. All right, I want to give some advice here. Most days I'm military murder Margot, but right now I want to talk to you true talk, real talk as Mama Margot. Okay, here goes. When you're in the military, you represent a legacy, a legacy of thousands of people who came before you. And sometimes when you are in other countries as a service member, you're in countries where lots of blood was shed. I mean, let's take Germany, for example, or even Japan. So do yourself a favor, be on your best behavior when you are a guest in someone else's country, even if your visit lasts longer than a week. I know it's really hard to be on your best behavior for 36 months or 24 months or even two weeks, but you should try. It's embarrassing to act a fool as a guest in someone else's house. And by the way, this applies to other things as well. We represent our families, our universities, our spouses, everything, everywhere we go, we are a representative of something and we should use that as a badge of honor. That's it. I know that was really preachy, but I really wanted to say it because I'm sick and tired of reading newspaper articles where our, our military is in other countries and the people from that country, they don't want us there anymore because we are just acting a fool. Right, all right. What do you think about the ultimate sentence of Nick and Barbara? Was it just? I want to hear from you. So please look me up on Twitter at Military Murder and on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. If you want to contact me by email, I can be reached at Military Murder Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
As always, it's tough out there, so you need to remain vigilant always. You have a fantastic week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder case next week. Shh, let's work on our podcast.